The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is an honor to bring to our listeners Mr. Kevin Fulton. Kevin Fulton is a farmer, a 40-year-plus farmer based in Litchfield, Nebraska, and he holds an animal science degree from Kansas State University and a master's of science degree in exercise from the University of Massachusetts. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Well, we met in Nebraska at a farming conference and have kept in touch through the Internet, and you talk about farming from a very interesting perspective, and that is what you saw 40 years ago versus what you see today, and some of those changes are troubling. So I wonder if you could talk about, you've got 2,800 acres, Fulton Farms in Litchfield. Tell me on those 2,800 acres what happened when your family first came over from Ireland versus what you see today? Well, I think there's been a lot of changes. When my family came over, it was in 1900, so they were farming with horses. My dad grew up farming with horses, and they went from that era into you know the era of mechanization and industrialization, and we've seen a lot of changes in that direction. And you know what we've tried to do is move into a more sustainable system. Now, that does not mean that we are going back to farming like my grandparents did. What it means is that we can use, still use some of those concepts, apply a modern technology, and it allows us to produce more with fewer inputs. So, you know, this whole uh, idea of going back to farming, you know, sustainable farming as going back to farming with 40 acres and a mule is really a misconception, and, and people need to kind of get over that. I mean, I'm not running my grandfather's farm here. We're doing a lot of things that, that he didn't do, but we are able to use some of the same concepts because they worked back then, and they still work now. I mean, we were trying to do a system that, that essentially mimics Mother Nature, and she's been along, around for a lot longer designing the uh, principles that we use. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that your farm is largely or had been largely conventional, and the major crops that you produced were corn and alfalfa. But now you're moving more towards bringing a more diverse both plant and animal system back to the farm. Yes, we've moved away from the monocultures with high inputs of petroleum-based inputs and uh, chemicals and fertilizers and moved to a diversity where we're grass-based, but yet we can still rotate back into doing a crop system. But So it may be a monoculture for a short period of time, part of a year, and we found that we can build our own fertility and produce more doing that than our conventional counterparts. Do you feel isolated? You know, are you in a sea of otherwise conventional farmers doing things differently? Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, what we're, I mean I'm the only organic farmer in my county, so that <laughs> tells you something, I guess. And, and we do real high stock density grazing, and there's maybe only 
maybe one, two other people in my county that are doing that. So, I mean, yeah, in my immediate area, we're doing things entirely different than than what a lot of the, my neighbors and people in the community are doing. I'm going to guess that that can be sometimes a little uncomfortable because you're different. And it takes a brave person to be different, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, it's it's not so uncomfortable right here in my own community. I think people are pretty accepting, and they they see I'm doing something different. Sometimes they may be critical. Other people embrace what we're doing. I think what where I really find it the greatest opposition is that I'm pretty outspoken. I've been an advocate for sustainable and organic agriculture and even for animal welfare reform, and, and throwing myself into that arena has probably you know, no doubt got me uh, the most opposition. Well, now, you grew up on the farm, and one would think that you would have been pretty much desensitized to some of the things that an outsider might witness on the farm. What turned you around? What what helped you see that there were problems with regard to the way animals were treated, for example, or problems with regard to keeping a farm in monocultures? Well, I think, you know, I've had some good manners along the way. I've had people... I've always been open-minded. My father was very open-minded. Uh, he was a veterinarian and practiced for many years and then uh, farmed full-time after he, he retired from veterinary practice. And And I learned a lot from him, and I learned a lot from some other mentors that I had. just helped me maybe realize that maybe some of the practices we were doing were not in our best interest. When I say in our best interest, in, in the best interest of our own family, the neighbors, the community, the people that consume our products, the people downwind, the people downstream. So I came to the conclusion that I needed to be fully accountable for everything I was doing out here and how it might affect other people. And if, if, if we as farmers don't do that, then, you know, who else is going to? Is that concept taught, do you think, in land-grant universities to be fully accountable to the behaviors on your farm, to how that's going to affect the community? No, I mean, I don't think it's being taught on, on, on a broad spectrum. I, I don't think it's that most farmers can uh, pass that, most farms in, in this country can pass that test either. What I do see happening is there is a trend. In the last I read, there was about 80 colleges and universities in this country that are moving at least in somewhat in a direction where they are starting a sustainable or organic agricultural curriculum at their institution. So that tells me that there's a need for that, and there is slowly beginning to be some change, but up until just recently, no. I mean, that stuff is, uh, those kinds of things are not being taught. It's just production, 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 primarily. Mm-hmm. As if organic farmers aren't producing, right? Yeah, yeah I, I'd love to tell you how much more we produce <laughs> uh, organically than our uh, conventional counterparts do. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that, because when we were speaking before our taped interview, you had mentioned that your wheat production is twice that of your neighbors? Yeah, I think it was it been three years. Three years ago, we produced an organic wheat crop that was the yield was twice what the state average was, and about double what my neighbors were. And, and you know, the best part of the story is we one field we took 100 bushel of the acre wheat off, and that's with no inputs except seed. No inputs except seed. Yeah, that's got to be economically advantageous to you. I was riding a combine. This was a very modern, you know, I hired a combine and done. It was a very, very modern combine, modern technology. But there was places in the field where the yield monitor was hitting over 115 bushels. And the best part of the story is that as soon as we got the wheat harvested, because we had not done any spraying and, and sterilizing the ground, we had a significant amount of rain that year in August, and we got an incredible growth of wild grasses. And we came in, and 
and we were able to get $100 worth of grazing value after we harvested the wheat where our neighbors had a sterilized field where nothing grew until they planted the next spring. Now, after we harvested this wild grass, we were following the cattle. As the cattle were moving across in high stock density grazing, we, we spread it out turnip seed, and the cattle stomped that seed into the ground. Those turnips came up in the, the fall, and we grazed that again in, in December. So essentially, we triple cropped that, and that's intensive agriculture. Uh, so people think that, you know, if you're farming organically or, or you call yourself a sustainable farmer, that, that you're, you're not intensive. It, actually, the opposite is true. You know, what we do out here is, is way more intensive than anybody that's raising a monoculture or doing conventional type agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier is that, you know, we're, we're not going back exactly. 75 years and farm like our grandparents did. We're actually producing more with less, much fewer inputs. Mm-hmm. Kevin, I have to tell you, it's kind of frightening sometimes to drive through those areas of monocultures to me because I think about all of the organisms that are really affected, like the bees and the birds not having the kinds of foods that were available to them, the pollinators, for example. And we talked a little bit about your farm having this wonderful mix of animals and you're going to be doing the symbiotic produce and orchards and you've got animals and it's all working together in just like mother nature would have designed it herself but we talked a little bit about alfalfa and i shared with you my concern that we're going to have yet another monoculture right we've got the monoculture corn we got the monoculture soybeans monoculture alfalfa and worse the genetically modified alfalfa was approved by tom vilsack our secretary of, of usda talk to me a little bit about your concerns with the genetically modified alfalfa? Well, the biggest concern in my mind is the contamination. Are we going to get to a place, and it looks like it's, it's almost inevitable, that if we use it long enough that we won't have any non-GMO alfalfa left because of the pollen drift. And, and alfalfa is generally planted in a lot of situations anyway. It gets into a, a blooming stage, and there's going to be pollen carried further than what you'd see in corn and soybeans. So uh, I don't know all the particulars because we've gotten away from raising alfalfa as a monoculture ourselves here so I'm not in the game of raising hay and selling alfalfa anymore mm-hmm. but it just looks like it, we need to do more testing before we start allowing those things to happen. I agree. Now one of the things you mentioned to me though about your alfalfa crop was that some of the weeds that had been in the alfalfa were actually more nutritious or added to the nutritional benefits of the alfalfa crop itself, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, you know, with doing this high stock density grazing that we do, we've learned a lot about animals that we wouldn't have known about otherwise because we're out there two or three times a day moving livestock, and you get to be pretty in tune with what they're doing, what they're eating, what their grazing habits are. And we notice that we turn cattle into a fresh padlock of some of the luscious grass, luscious legumes that you'll ever see Sometimes they immediately go for plants that most people would consider weeds and, and, and have very little value. But what we find is when we test those plants, that some of them have higher protein values, higher energy values than some of the plants that we would that we've actually planted. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I don't really understand what, what the reasoning is for uh, having to have an alfalfa crop completely free of weeds when uh, a ruminant animal probably is most likely going to eat that crop and they're going to get as good a value out of some of that stuff that you're spraying and killing and then risking 
killing a lot of beneficial insects and uh, other organisms in the soil uh, while you're doing that and contaminating the rest of the alfalfa mm-hmm. on GMO alfalfa crops. So I, I don't see that as as being a problem that needs to be that, that's that, that great that needs to be addressed. I mean, I'm all for technology, but when you use technology to solve a problem, but in the process you create three, four, five additional problems, I don't think that's in the best interest of for the industry. Mm-hmm. Yes, those unintended consequences that yeah. are not often considered. Well, I'm sure you've seen the farm literature, the agricultural journals that are largely supported by the agribusiness, and the promise is made that with this GMO alfalfa, there's going to be higher yields. And yet I'm looking at your farm and the information that you're telling me, firsthand experience, you're getting twice as much yield, at least with your wheat crop, simply by having really great soil using the organic system. And the alfalfa, the GMO alfalfa promise is higher yield. And that's not making sense to me. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, there's there may be some factors that would help with the yield, but I don't understand myself mm-hmm. what they are. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Kevin Fulton. He is the owner and manager of Fulton Farms in Litchfield, which is located in central Nebraska. Kevin, tell me a little bit more about some of the issues you're becoming more involved with as an active farmer, speaking out about some of the things that disturb you with regard to trends in agriculture. One of the more recent things I've been involved with is has to do with animal welfare, and what, what we've seen is is we've moved to systems where we've taken animals completely off the land, and that's hurt our rural economies because there's a correlation with the movement of the animals off the land and the movement of the people off the land. And we've taken these animals and put them into these what I call concentration camps, CAFOs, factory farms, and in a lot of instances, particularly with swine and poultry industries, we've, we've taken them and put them into extreme confinement situations where they're housed in cages and crates, so confining that they can't, can barely move, barely turn around, spread their wings, you know, spread their limbs. And we've gone from a situation where we are supposedly supposed to be have dominion over animals to a, a situation where we have complete domination. And I think that is a disgrace. And I think uh, these animals deserve better. I think a cow should be able to be allowed to be a cow and a pig should be able to, to be a pig and not be you know, housed in a situation where you know we wouldn't you know, we would put our worst criminals in a, in a place like that. And these animals haven't done anything to deserve that. And yes, they're going to be raised for food. And they're going to be slaughtered in the end. I don't have a problem with that. I'm a, I'm a meat eater. You know, I, I hunt. I raise livestock. I'm not an animal rights fanatic. But I tell you what is fanatical. And that's taking an animal and putting it in extreme confinement like that. That takes a fanatical mindset. And I take a middle-of-the-road approach. I get shot at from both sides. You have the uh, people that think that it's okay to do that on one hand, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you have, uh, you know, the vegan abolitionists who think it's absolutely wrong to use an animal in any manner or to to raise livestock. So a good friend of mine and mentor always told me if you were getting shot at from both sides, that was you were probably right where you needed to be, and that's in a reasonable middle ground. Well, you know how the approach that I take. We consumers are always told that this is the way we have to raise animals because we want that cheap food in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that the only people that embrace those systems are the people that, you know, have a vested interest in them in, in terms of profit. There's no sector of our society that 
thinks that it's okay to do that. So it's not really about what I think. It's about what our society thinks, what the consumers who are buying our product, it's, it's more about what they think. And it's absolutely wrong to say that we have to use those systems to uh, feed the world. I mean, that's just a, a lousy justification for the people that are using these systems, and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had mentioned, and I and I would love for you to talk about this whole notion of American farmers feeding the world. Are mm-hmm. we, and should we be? You know, I, as you know, I speak all over the country, from New York to Los Angeles. Just got back from New York City, Washington, D.C. Uh, here a couple weeks ago, and I spoke with a lot of different consumers and different leaders of different organizations. And and when I when I talk to farmers, you know, I, I'll ask them this question, and I've yet to find very few farmers that will. Uh, and myself included, we don't wake up in the morning feeling an obligation to feed the world. And I think we need to get over that, and that's more the industry's pep talk to try to keep farmers producing cheap food, which is another problem that we have. But really, a farmer's obligation should be, one, to take care of the land, be a good steward of the land, take care of the animals that should be out on that landscape, not in a you know in a CAFO or uh, housed in, in a, a building where they can't move and so forth. And the other thing would be to raise food for those around us in the most sustainable way possible and produce a healthy and uh, humane product for the consumer. And then we, what we need to do is teach the rest of the world to do the same. Mm-hmm. This idea that we, you know, we need to feed the whole world. I mean, why would we think that other countries would want to be dependent on us for food any more than we would want to be, for example, uh, dependent on the Middle East for our energy? Exactly. Uh, we need to teach other people to, to raise food sustainably and feed feed themselves, and uh, we need we need to feed the people around us. That's my opinion. Kevin, what kind of changes have you seen in your own rural community over the past few decades as farms have changed from going from these multi-animal and plant systems to more of a monoculture where we separate animals from crops? Well, we've lost much of our sustainability. We've lost people. I mean, there was 10,000 people in my county in 1930. There's about 3,000 now. That's a tremendous drop. I mean, the animals have moved off the land, and we've gone to systems where we we claim it's more efficient, but it actually it's not. But it became more important to have our neighbor's land than, than to have the neighbor around. Mm-hmm. And with these monocultures, we were able to utilize big big machinery, and we didn't need as many people. But with my system, we are bringing more people back onto the land. And my farm supports five or six times as many people now as it did when I moved back here 17 years ago uh, with the same land base. Now, you know, one of the big knocks on organic agriculture is that it takes too much labor. But that actually is one of the great things about it. We can bring people back on the land. Those people need jobs. And personally, I would rather pay three or four employees a salary than give... You know, Monsanto that money to buy inputs or John Deere money so I could run bigger equipment. I'd rather have people out here because those people have children in the school, they go to church in town, they buy their groceries in town, and they support the rural communities. When I send, when I spend money for inputs that go to these big uh, conglomerates, they don't stay in our community. That money goes away. Mm-hmm. Kevin, what are the biggest barriers that you see preventing farms from moving in this progressive direction that supports communities where they're truly sustainable? What are the barriers? Well, I think a lot of it 
revolves around just becoming entrenched in in traditions and not being feeling helpless. Like, you know, you can't move in a different direction, and peer pressure, and a lot of it's maybe lack of understanding of what the potential is. And yeah, another barrier um, for people moving in a different direction, I think, is just the you know the, there's a lot of profit right now in raising uh, row crops. The prices are extremely high. You know, one of the problems with that is the inputs keep going up and up, and there's going to probably come a point where uh, the price may drop, and if we see uh, some sort of shift in, in you know, supply and demand, and and then the input prices stay up there, the price for the grain drops, and then farmers are back to where they're operating at a loss. There, you know, there's some still some volatility there. Uh, right now, it's 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 pretty attractive, so there's not incentives to really move in a different direction. But what we've tried to do out here is insulate ourselves from a lot of those input costs. We've slashed our inputs by you know 70 80 90% and a lot in fact we've eliminated a lot of input costs completely the rest of them we've dropped drastically because we understand that that there is going to be a point where we have post oil agriculture you know I may not see much of that in my lifetime but I'm not farming just for myself I'm farming for the next generation trying to get them prepared so you know we were trying to look ahead and and uh prepare for some of those things that we see uh could be problematic and then certainly economic challenges for the next generation. Now, are these row crops predominantly corn, and is it being raised for animal feed, or are the prices going up because it's being used for corn-based ethanol? Well, I think uh, at least here in Nebraska, um, well, I think nationwide now we're over 40% of the corn is being used for ethanol, and in Nebraska I think it's over 50% now. So I think, you know, the ethanol has a significant impact on corn prices. And I think most, a lot of people anyway, would understand that, you know, ethanol is not really a long-term solution to our energy uh, needs. It, uh, in the short term, it may have some benefits. But, you know, what's going to be beyond ethanol, I think, is the big question. Mm-hmm. And how is that? And if we find something that replaces ethanol, we're going to have mountains, I mean mountains of corn, around, and that's certainly going to have an impact on the price. What is your water quality like there in Litchfield? Well, we have some of the best water in the world. We sit over some of the deep, deepest uh, areas of the Ogallala Aquifer. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's always a concern, and we test our water, uh, but it is a concern that you know some of the uh, chemicals that are being used can contaminate our groundwater, and, that, and that's happened in a lot of areas. So, you know, we're pretty uh, concerned that that we don't get to a point where that happens because uh, my family and I drink that water. Exactly. You know, I want to get back to the the topic of factory farms for a moment, if I might, because I, I neglected to ask you when we started this conversation, I would like to know what your definition of a factory farm is because a lot of the agricultural literature that I see looks at factory farms and calls them family farms. So how is a consumer to know what is a factory farm? Well, that's a that's a great question, and, and it's not a, necessarily an easy one to answer. I mean, there's a lot of different definitions. I tell people to uh, Google factory farm, you'll come up with about uh, a million uh, links that you can go in and read about factory farms. My personal definition of a factory farm would be primarily, a, um, I think most swine and poultry cafos definitely fall under the term factory farm. We use a assembly line mentality to raise livestock. 
they're essentially just a production unit, and they're, you know, uh, everything is uh, treated like it's on. You know, the animals are treated like they're just a production unit on an assembly line, and and it's a factory-like setting, and they're managed that way. Very little animal husbandry practices are used. It's a, a plant factory mentality. Now, there's a lot of people in the industry that say there is no such thing as a factory farm, but uh, you know, I've, I think most people understand that that's not the case. What was the second part of your question? I'm missing part of it, I know. I guess the best way for me to describe it is really these, these messages that I would describe as propaganda that describe factory farms as family, oh, family farms. farms. Yeah, that's, right. that's what I, was, I couldn't think of. I mean, yeah, most farms, whether they're factory farms or organic farms or conventional farms or, you know, whatever the case, they're owned by a fa- they're owned by a family. So they're not, those aren't mutually exclusive terms. I mean, most factory farms are family farms. Yes. But the industry, you know, they try to use that like, oh, it's not a factory farm, it's a family farm. Well, no, it's a factory farm owned by a family. Yeah. So they, they want to try to confuse the, the, the public on that issue. And uh, Well, they're doing a good job, I think. <laughs> Kevin, we only have a couple more minutes, and I want to give you a chance to talk about anything that I may have neglected to ask you that you want our listeners to know about farming in the heart of our country. Um. I just, you know, I, you know, I get people talk, tell me that you can't expect everybody to farm like, you know, like I do, and that's true. I'm not expecting everybody to farm like I do, but what I tell people is that I expect accountability and transparency. And by accountability, it's like I mentioned earlier, you got to be accountable for what you're doing on your farm. You need to question yourself, and like like us, we've scrutinize ourselves harder than than anybody else and we've changed a lot of things on our farm and we still are making changes because we we stop and ask ourselves is this really the best interest for us is this really the, for the best interest of the animals or is this really the best for the land and we continue to make make changes and i think uh we also have to take in factor in everything that we do on our farm is if there's something that we're doing on my place that's adversely affecting people on the other side of the fence then i need to probably Look at changing that. And the other thing is transparency. I mean, we've hosted people from every continent in the world except Antarctica. And people can come on our farm and see what we're doing. And most people, you know, people in the industry say, oh, yeah, they want the consumers to know what's going on. They want to call them ignorant on one side of, the, out of one side of their mouth, but then they want to say, oh, but we want them to, we need to educate them, but then they want to make it illegal to come on farms and take pictures. So, you know, we get all these mixed messages. Well, I don't think we can we can't, we can't have it both ways, you know. Mm-hmm. We have to be transparent because we're selling our products to the American consumer, and they deserve to know what we're providing them with. This whole idea that this is the way we produce your food, you'll eat it and you'll like it, and how dare you ask us how we produce it because you don't know anything, and we you know just trust us because we uh, would never do anything to harm you. That that, that old attitude is. Uh, <laughs> is on the way out. It's, I mean, it's got to go, it's, Kevin, and it's not in our best interest. I want to thank you uh, for being my guest. I want to thank you especially for farming organically and producing food with attention to your neighbor and for future generations. We've been speaking with Kevin Fulton. He is the owner and manager of Fulton Farms in Litchfield, Nebraska. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Kevin, I'm really glad you're out there. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me.